So apparently Apple has a patent for a synthetic group selfie that's perfect for social distancing. They describe it as this, Read a quote, arrangement or composition of individual selfies obtained from a plurality of computing devices into a single group image, unquote. I don't really know what that means other than that's not really a selfie. If I've got to get my creative department involved or use Photoshop or something like that doesn't really count. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome back to Touchpoint and to a special episode because it's number 175. Actually, it's really not. I mean, it's the same as any other episode, I guess, really. But it's one, 175 episodes in, which sounds like some sort of a milestone uh, just mm-hmm. in and of itself. That yeah. you hear on the other side of the microphone is Chris. I'm Reed. <laughs> yeah, Reed, we're almost at episode 200. Although, as you pointed out, we're not really almost there. We're still 25 weeks away from that. So, <laughs> what is that like Christmas or something? I don't know. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's somewhere in between cannibal rats and um, <laughs> like flame throwing penguins or something. I don't know. Somewhere in there, I think, is where we'll hit episode 200. But anyway, we're here. We're here for another another week, another episode. Uh, I'm actually recording this from my office. I'm going to start coming back up to the actual office, you know, a little bit during the week. And so things are slowly starting to uh, open back up, kind of get back to normal. Uh, I say normal. That's probably not really a fair statement. There's no telling what's going to happen. But in any <laughs> I'm recording from the office this week. <laughs> Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for telling a friend. Thanks for uh, always making Touchpoint part of your weekly listening schedule. Uh, Whether it's more about this show or one of the other ones on the network, you can learn more by visiting us online at touchpoint.health. You can also rate, review, subscribe over on Apple Podcasts. You can stream it on Spotify. But most importantly, just listen and tell someone else about it. We certainly appreciate all the support. So we're going to take a brief pause here before we jump into today's episode. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Well, Reed, it's fair to say, as 
kind of we talked about just before the break here that things are changing so quickly in our society. As we look at things where we're at now, I don't think we anticipated at the beginning of this year that um, we'd be going through all of the different changes to our society, to the marketplace, to our industry. No, I had no idea that there was such thing as a murder hornet, for example, but uh, (laughs) now that is well grained into my vernacular. So here we are. (laughs) And to that point, right, about how things rapidly change, and and this year has been definitely one for rapid change. You know, last week, I actually presented at the Mayo Shishmid Virtual Conference. Yes. And my presentation was about how social media is evolving and changing, but health systems and patients are still using it as a way to connect with their, you know, various uh, healthcare organizations. And we'll put a link in the show notes to that presentation in case you want to want to just go through the PowerPoint. It got me thinking, though, that, you know, as times change and as things change, the tools may be the same, but the way we use those tools and the way we actually show up certainly have to change. Absolutely. It it is that time. And to your point, I mean, even over these last several months, we've moved along with our clients, quite honestly. And I feel like three months ago was three years ago, as far as the way that we're helping people and evolving the need, the messaging, the creativity, et cetera. And so you you found a great initial article we'll take a look at from the Harvard Business Review. Why now is the time for open innovation is the title. What is open innovation? Well, it's interesting. Um, first of all, I'll say that this article just posted on the 6th of June, so relatively recently, but not recent enough where they were able to actually make a comment about sort of the social changes that are going on in our society right now, all the protests and things like that. They were still focusing on how organizations are responding to coronavirus. So they talk about in organizations, innovation occurs quite frequently. But in this year, they have seen some rapid advancements of innovation. And these these innovations occur not only in one organization, but across multiple organizations. And in many cases, those organizations working together. And that's sort of the genesis of the term open innovation, meaning innovation that occurs openly across multiple different entities. So they gave an example here. There was a, a heavy truck maker, Scania, that's in Europe, and the Karolinska University Hospital, they partnered together. So the heavy truck manufacturer converted their trailers into mobile testing stations for coronavirus. And they also directed 20 highly skilled purchasing and logistics experts to locate, acquire, and deliver PPE to healthcare workers. And this is an example of innovation that occurred, again, across multiple business entities. We've heard stories about that happening in our society here in America, too, right? Yeah, another one they, they reference here, Ford, similar, I guess, to the, uh, the other heavy truck maker. Ford is working together with United Auto Workers, GE Healthcare, 3M, etc., to build ventilators using, this is crazy, F-150 seat fans portable battery packs, and 3D printed parts. I mean, the 3D printed parts, I guess you'd be like, oh yeah, that makes total sense. But it's interesting to look at, you know, somebody like Ford, for example, finding a component they already have, in this case, seat fans from their most popular truck line to quip and uh, work alongside some others from other industries. That concept is open innovation, right? Or distributed, decentralized, and participatory ways of innovating. And that's something that a lot of organizations 
they've talked about for years, but they see that as a higher bar to reach. They never really saw, thought that it would actualize. But now, because of the pandemic, because of the coronavirus, there are more and more ways for organizations to start to embrace open innovation. You know, they talk about the, and you saw it through those few examples, but how value is created, right? And the whole point of open innovation is that it allows for more ways to create that value. So these are new partnerships, right? So Ford didn't work with, you know, GE Healthcare before. And Siemens didn't work with, you know, these big truck manufacturers and things like that. But it allows you to use complementary skills or, you know, look for potential um, design cues, uh, resources, et cetera. And, you know, we'll probably what we're ultimately going to see are these longer lasting relationships based on it. And of course, as we start to move down this path of open innovation, all of the I would say more traditional concerns that you have about innovating outside of your organization with other organizations start to rear their ugly head. And in the Harvard Business Review, they've actually identified uh, a number of things that are potentially a concern and and really how if organizations are going to embrace open innovation, they need to adapt to these and kind of uh, move past them in order to keep this this train moving, so to speak. For example, they talk about forget about the IP for a moment. So intellectual property concerns are obviously probably a big sticking point, I guess, for most. I know with even just the little piddly things I've been involved in through the years, IP is always a hang up, it seems like. But they risk blocking any open innovation from really gaining momentum because people get caught up in the idea of, well, who's going to own it after the fact or who's, whose is this? So, for example, during the COVID-19 crisis, uh, it could be wise to focus more on creating value than capturing value. How do we best help and be a part of the solution? But sometimes it's hard to get past the idea that who ultimately is going to own this and how do you protect yourself and stuff like that versus taking this leap of faith that they talk about in here, collaborating on some of the more important stuff without risking negative exposure. Yeah, kind of like that example you gave earlier about Ford working with, you know, GE Healthcare and 3M. I'm wondering if at some point, if there was a conversation about, well, who's going to own the finished product after this is all said and done? And I guess if you're like Apple, all you have to do is submit a patent to get that trademarked. Clearly. The IP. Yeah. <laughs> a second point here is uh, to leverage two-sided motivation. So they say that companies that often realize that they rely on voluntary and active participation of employees and partners to succeed. And that works well, right? So internally, there's a lot of ways to build sort of that impetus around creating innovation. And I know I worked with a lot of health systems on ways that they can actually develop that culture of innovation inside their organization. But again, when you start to rely on sort of a combination of organizations together, that might be a little bit harder. You can rally people around a particular brand. You know, everybody at maybe a hospital wants to create a, a better way of, of managing care and shortening length of stays. But when you start to get into things that are outside your organization, you have to figure out how to get the motivation in line. You need to rely on a combination of hard and soft incentives to motivate internal and external collaborators. Companies need to identify and respond to the true motivation of both themselves as well as their partners. And that can get a little tricky if you think about that. It is because how do you really know what that motivation is other than just what people say, you know, so you end up having to take that kind of leap of faith. 
Next, they talk about the actually embracing new partners. And anybody that's worked with a new team, a new organization, or even took a new job will kind of get the the spirit here, right? So new, new partnerships and new partners always entail some sort of cost. You got to find the partner. You got some sort of validation, compliance. You got the social piece of that, like how do people work together and things like that. And that can really slow things down, certainly. And are they actually providing a complementary skill and perspective, right? So again, part of that search and validation part. Obviously, COVID-19 and coronavirus and that, that kind of world that we, we are in and, and have been in has alleviated that to some degree. First, uh, they say that the top management assumed a lot of risk by associating with new partners, but they did that through sending strong messages that open innovation was the way to go. So again, imagine that, you know, a program being successful because leadership drove it, you know, versus <laughs> it, you know, just yeah. floundering somewhere. Anyway, Second, not only the spread of the virus uh, grew exponentially, but the pool of potential partners that did as well. Back to the Ford example, using seat, you know, fans from, from seats in their F-150s. Well, that's probably not where you would have gone as uh, GE or 3M, et cetera, initially, you know, assuming this wasn't the catalyst for it. But they talk about when companies across the globe are, are affected by the same crisis, then obviously there's a lot of different motivation. There's new ways to conduct business. It, it becomes more important because it's everybody's concerned with it. It's not reduced to a market or a town or a part of the country or even just a country. You know, when you're describing that, Reed, it makes a lot of sense. And it almost feels like, you know, because of this, there is a, a better need for innovation or a better a better environment for innovation. We're all rowing the same boat. We're all trying to get to solve this problem, to manage coronavirus, to get our lives back to whatever to whatever normal may look like. And that becomes a big driver and a big motivator, which really leads to the fourth major point that this article points puts forward. It says urgency leads to transformation. And I know we've heard this, right? We heard the joke about don't let the pandemic drive your transformation, right? You should be driving your own transformation. But really, when you think about transformative efforts, and I do a lot of consulting with organizations on this, the initial steps towards open innovation in normal times is pretty simple. You start up an innovation priority within your organization. You maybe bring in some consultants, you uh, set up a way to corral ideas, you wait for those ideas to come in, and then you kind of rank them and decide which ones are going to have the most impact. That's a very traditional approach towards transformation. But with open innovation, particularly in this time of need, the transformation is a, first of all, it's life saving, potentially, if you do it right. The focus is there. Everybody's looking at it because everybody's being impacted in some way or another. And it allows you to almost fast track innovation. And we have a great use case here in healthcare when we think about like telemedicine. Everybody was floundering and wondering like, oh, and they have to, you know, we're trying to get telemedicine initiatives up and running for years and years and years. And then suddenly here we are, coronavirus time, two weeks later, they have telemedicine. It's easy to slow play that stuff when there's not a global pandemic. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess. Because <laughs> you're right. I mean, it was there was all kinds of reasons we couldn't do X, Y or Z. And then uh, at some point, well, that just wasn't an option. <laughs> anymore. It, it, the, the option of not doing it wasn't one of the choices. They had to figure it out and they did really fast. 
And it's not only within companies within certain countries. I mean, putting aside all the partisan politics around, you know, how do we respond to this on a global level? There are scientists across the world right now that are working on a coronavirus vaccine. There are organizations across the world that are partnering together in ways that they haven't partnered before, sharing best practices, trying to be innovative. And we all are, as public health and healthcare experts, we're all looking at, and even you know, leadership, we're looking at ways other organizations and other communities are doing things from all across the world in order to apply those best practices to us. So we suddenly created of the world a really great place where a lot of innovation can occur and all with the single purpose in mind of trying to address and eliminate coronavirus. That's why it, it sometimes I think for us feels like it's moving so fast because quite frankly, it is. We're all moving very fast because we're all very focused on this one topic or this one main thing. Obviously, anytime you get everybody rowing in the same direction, it's a monumental difference than everybody having their own agenda. After the break, we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit about going from innovation to creative expressions of this, because they kind of go hand in hand. Innovation is important. It solves problems. But creativity, and now when when we talk about creativity at the second half of the show, is more about how do brands express themselves creatively through all the, the various changes that are going on in society. We'll do that right after this break. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. Before the break, we were talking about innovation and how all the changes in our changing world is created a perfect storm for innovation. It also has created an entirely new space for organizations and brands to express themselves in creative ways in this space. So we're going to turn to another article, Reed, which is on, unfortunately, it's a website that requires you to log in. So we're going to put a link in the show notes. I signed up for this site, just gave up my email address, and I then I promptly opted out. So you know, lesson learned if you're kind of concerned about giving away your email address. It's in the show notes. It's an article off the drum.com. I've never been to that website before. Have you? I have not. The article is called, What Can This Crisis Teach Us About the Future of Creativity? It was an actual, uh, an opinion piece by a chief creative officer at an agency. Uh, FCB Inferno is the agency, and the and the chief creative officer's name is Owen Lee. And he offered his take on why COVID-19 is proving the importance of community and the magic of mass communication on a creative level. FCB Inferno, is that a um, Premier League soccer team? Or a really bad 70s disaster movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
What was the one with the shark and the tornado or something? Exactly. Sharknado. Yeah, there you go. Anyway, but he talks about the idea of creativity and the value around creativity during difficult times. There's a couple of interesting points in here. Now, again, this is coming from a creative, not, I'm not trying to be negative on this, but... (laughs) But yeah, he said we can see uh, how much more demand there is uh, for it by the soaring TV viewing figures and the huge demand for streaming services. Yeah, I mean, obviously, some of that is a boredom thing, right? I mean, people are sitting around and it makes sense to stream things. I will say, because of the level of creativity and how good things are, I don't know that we're going to go back anytime soon to the big Friday blockbuster, got to go to the movie to like see the new release thing. But anyway, that's a, that's another that's a whole other topic. But yeah, well, I would agree with you on that. I know they're opening up movie theaters, and I'm thinking I won't go first on that one. Uh, you guys can do that. But he did point out that there's little acts of creativity that are springing up all over the place, like you know, mothers transforming their running group into a medicine delivery service for people that are stay at home. You know, I see restaurants being a little creative because they can't have people coming and sitting in at full capacity, so their their takeout service, or even some of the more fancier restaurants, are are actually selling meal kits. You can bring it home and you can bring in the recipe from the chef of that restaurant and you can prepare that meal at home. I've even seen here in the, in the Twin Cities, a person who, a good friend of mine who runs a cookie business, she was still doing online cookie sales. She decided to keep herself busy by uh, getting all of these smaller businesses together and creating little emergency kits for the healthcare workers mm-hmm. in the front line. And that became uh, now a, a philanthropic endeavor of hers. And now she's springing that into a new bit of business. So again, in these challenging times, creativity springs up all over the place, right? It really does. Again, I think because you get everybody's rowing in the same direction. I've seen this in a local community. You know, we've got a, we have a family that we're uh, close with who's, uh, you know, had a child get cancer. And that community kind of rises up around those folks. And people have seen this obviously all over the country, the fundraisers and support and dollars and goodwill and, you know, all, all those types of things. I think we see it more and see it more broadly, uh, certainly in, in this time where, again, we're all kind of dealing with, with the same thing. Another interesting point that he brought up with is about how we respond to creativity, Read, And he comes up with this concept called the hearth and the herd. The concept of the hearth is this. Because of what we're facing today, we're now in an unprecedented place where many families are gathering together like they did way back when, before, you know, before times, in the pre-times, even back to when I was a child, if you think about it. Now what's happening is everybody's kind of contained together. Their family units are closer together. There's more space now around the hearth, so to speak, the fireplace, where you could have shared experiences. You're streaming TV shows together. You're maybe um, watching news together. There's a lot of resources around how to talk to your children about racism, you know, given all the current events that are going on. All of these are things are because now we have this new cohesive kind of hearth or family unit where we're all kind of brought together. And that has changed the way we consume things. And that has changed the way creatives should be paying attention to, you know, the shifts in our patterns of consumption. So two things. One I will say selfishly that there's been a lot of good about being home, right? And everything being canceled. Now this is 
devastating and has devastated a lot of people's lives and livelihood and et cetera. I will say selfishly, it has allowed us to slow down because we don't have dance. We don't have gymnastics. We don't have basketball practice. Right. And to your point, we're back and we're spending time as, as a family unit. Uh, even if it's just outside shooting basketball or walking around the street, you know, rocking on the block, et cetera, because that's what there is to do at this point. And there's been a lot of just really greatness about that, quite honestly. And I've heard more people say, it's not like something I've, you know, unique to me. I've heard other people say this as well, you know, this time with their family and this time just really kind of resetting a little bit, not eating out all the time and eating at home and having to cook everything. You know, it's just, it's just a, it's an interesting way to think about some of the habits that may be forming out of this that could be very beneficial to families and individuals and in the day of go, go, go and technology and, you know, all that kind of stuff. I think too, that as we move back to kind of the norm, so to speak, I don't know, back to the habit forming piece, I think a lot of this will stick and this will be kind of the way it is, which is kind of interesting if you think about it. That is interesting. Now, so the second concept is the herd. He points out here that over the last few years, we've become increasingly hyper-polarized. Societally, politically, we've, we've really become very niche in terms of or the way we approach things. The self-identity is very much a human nature thing where we want to identify people that are like us to be part of the herd, highlighting our differences. He points out coronavirus has allowed us to become more focused on a common good. I would say that even extends into today's world as we think about like racial injustice and some of the things that are talking about, there's a commonality now that we're all feeling like we're all in this together. I mean, we may be in different boats, but we're all in the same storm, so to speak. And we need to fight these battles together because nobody is inherently pro-coronavirus, just as nobody is inherently pro-racist, right? I mean, that's just not the way we are. And that really has has given us an opportunity, again, from a creative perspective, to say now we have a hearth and a herd approach to how we start to express ourselves as a brand. Now, I will say if uh, I hear one more time an ad that talks about these unprecedented times, that <laughs> that may be my trigger to upgrade to Spotify paid. So just <laughs> putting that to the side, this idea of micro-targeting is, you know, makes us feel just that concept in and of itself means that we're not the same. And it's not that that's not a thing, I guess, but I just, I wonder I don't know. I'll just be curious to see where a lot of these communication platforms go at this point, how this targeting ultimately plays into uh, some of these concepts, certainly. He made some point to say that, you know, the the lessons that we learn from micro-targeting or being very specific and having these very niche communications, that doesn't mean that those will go away, but there certainly is more of a, you know, it's hard to say it when we talk about it right now, but we have a more unified approach towards a common goal. And he really believes that that is the role of where brands should be. He actually referred to tribes of humans, right? Back to the herd mentality. And therefore brands are indelible part of that need for connection. We want to be all like we belong in a community, in a society together. And that is where he, he pivots to talking about the role of creatives. 
he talks about this idea of at the emotional level, right? And so how do we do it in an authentic way that is, is good for the group, uh, if you will, uh, that makes it feel like it's specific enough to you and, you know, elicits that response. I mean, that's always, that's the hard part, right? Now, I don't know that it, this time that we've been through, I mean, I mentioned the, uh, you know, unprecedented times. It's like good grief. Like, right, can somebody come up with a different way of saying that would be helpful. But I think that is kind of part of it. We've got to get to a place from a creative standpoint and the creatives as a whole to still appeal to that emotional side, but it not feel like you're just at this broad level. And, and that's the trick, right? That is the real big trick is to be able to have that mass appeal, but also make it feel personalized. Overall, he what he's, he's trying to say is that brands that connect on that deepest level with people are those brands that are ultimately serving for the greater communal good and not in their individual self-interest. And this kind of harkens back a little bit to what we talked about before around when consumer sentiments changing, particularly through this pandemic, that they're starting to trust more in brands in which they're imparting that trust, right? And in which they're all acting in the best interests of the community. There is a trend here. I don't think it's Pollyannish at all to think about that we are moving to a role where we all feel that there's a greater communal good. We have to have that hope. We can no longer be divided. We have to work together because we have a lot of I'm going to say it, Reed, unprecedented times oh, boy. in front of us. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> now you got to buy Spotify Pro. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, that's an optimistic message. It's optimistic in a lot of ways that, you know, it's evolved a little bit. You know, when we all first went home, I went home on March the 13th from work, not knowing exactly what was going to happen at that point. Not with my job per se, but just coronavirus and, you know, kind of what, what, what all was happening with that uncertainty, you know, very quickly became, you know what, this is an opportunity to spend time with my family. This is an opportunity to reset some habits, you know, both good and bad. Uh, I think I've mentioned before riding the Peloton bike. I've ridden every day since I've been home. It opens an opportunity for you to do some things. And I think that's where we find ourselves. And what he's you know, ultimately talking about here is creatives and the creativity. And earlier, as we were talking about the open innovation, kind of all rules or all bets are off. We eliminated some of the guardrails that even in our own minds, maybe we put there ourselves. And uh, we've got an opportunity to do some interesting things. Yeah. We certainly do. And with that, we'll go to an interview that I did um, was a couple of weeks ago with Mark Morse, who runs an agency here in town, Morse Code. He talks a little bit about how he works with organizations to lean into this message and, and, and help evolve the brand message over time as they navigate through different shifts in the overall changes to this pandemic. And that's a, it's kind of an interesting interview. So why don't we give that a listen and we'll be back after that to wrap up the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts section of the podcast. And today I am honored to have on the phone with me someone uh, that I just recently got to know. That is Mark Morse. Mark, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. For people listening in that may not know about you or your company's background, can you maybe share a little bit of your background with them? I am actually a product of a healthcare family born and raised in Rochester, Minnesota. My uh, father is a retired psychiatrist from the Mayo Clinic. I'm no stranger to the healthcare industry uh, as a member of its literal family. And as I uh, grew up and, and eventually migrated from my music career to a marketing career, it seemed somewhat inevitable, certainly in the Minneapolis healthcare industry, uh, that I would eventually uh, start to consume a lot of experience along the way through the healthcare, rich healthcare brands in this community. <clears throat> yeah, so Morse Code is a, a modern creative agency. Uh, we like to focus in brand, digital, and content. Ultimately, the convergence between those three disciplines is where you'll often find us in the work we do for our clients, which uh, include a variety of healthcare brands from United Healthcare and Optum to 3M and Boston Scientific and Medtronic, etc., cetera, uh, to a variety of other uh, non-healthcare brands. And at the end of the day, I think the common thread that weaves through them all is this desire to solve problems with creative ideation and application in a modern environment. Creative ideation, I think that that's really a good, a good positioning point of starting our conversation today, because I've been in this space for a long time, Mark, and I'm going to tell you, a lot of times the creativity that is in hospitals and health systems and kind of the work that we do, it seems like it's a sea of sameness. I mean, we really like the color blue. We really like to have physicians in white lab coats with their arms crossed, uh, more than likely put those people on billboards too. I mean, creativity is something that is, I wouldn't say it's not first and foremost in some of the work that the, the industry, hospitals and health systems have done traditionally. Is that a fair way to kind of position it or am I being too hard? No, I think you're absolutely right. I think there's a small segment of the audience in healthcare organizations and marketers who understand and have lived the trend over the last five to 10 years, which is to adopt more consumer-like marketing strategies and tactics and stylings to engage their patient base or caregivers or physician segments, et cetera. And creativity has shifted too, because you know it's only in the recent years that we've really talked a lot about content marketing and content creation and really applying that as part of the creative exercise, at least in, in again, in the, the vertical of hospitals and health systems. But that's been around for a while, right? I mean, creativity, let's start with that. How would you define that? I think as it relates specifically to healthcare, I think creativity's number one job is to be relatable. And relatable can be in a culturally connected um, idea or device like humor or an influencer or uh, some kind of surprisingly uh, delightful um, idea or communication. Uh, but it can also be uh, relatable in that you're continuing to deliver this notion of trust and support through a thought leader-like environment or where do we go? Where's the first place we go when we have a health concern? We wanna hear from the expert. You can creatively position your experts uh, above others in your competitive set um, in a more relatable fashion. There's something also that's very germane to that is that it's got to be relatable to your overall brand. I've seen in, in my experience a lot of health systems that have undergone some really creative concepts. They maybe took some edgy approaches to their their creative expressions of a brand, uh, maybe campaign or a service line campaign. 
that just didn't feel like it resonated because it seemed almost a little too far outside of the brand platform that they're in. Oh, 100% agree. I think you know, to do truly creative and relatable work in healthcare, I think that requires a client who's willing to, uh, to push the envelope and, and help redefine uh, what the values of the brand are, or at least recommunicate those in a unique, unique manner, perhaps refresh them. It takes an agency who understands brand and how to uh, maneuver those levers appropriately. And ultimately, it's the willingness of the organization to test some of those things as well. Trying new and creative approaches is not for everybody. And it's probably like pushing rope uphill if you're in a traditionally conservative business. One of the examples that I shared when you and I were bumping elbows a couple of weeks ago was this platform we created for United Healthcare. And it was an all online video content play called UHC.TV. It was non, non-transactional, it was all educative. And the entire premise was to be more relatable in healthcare. And this is at a time where you know, healthcare marketing is complicated because purchasing and using the healthcare system is complicated. So instead of just educating, we can, we apply the layer of edutainment. So uh, we want to engage at a little deeper level through entertaining kinds of qualities and creativity to deepen the understanding and that knowledge transfer. So we had, you know, online comedy clubs and we had a series, video series about talking animals. And these animals were conversing back and forth about how easy it is to engage in HSA and, you know, what's a deductible and a copay and all this kind of stuff. Um, and all of these engagements were very creative and very left of center from what United Healthcare's brand was traditionally about, yet they were still aligned with the brand from a values perspective and a relational perspective. That example is a really good illustration of how you can be a little on the edge, but still align it back to where the brand is. But it's interesting when you describe that use case, because we are now in a world that has significantly changed in over just a couple of weeks. I think it's kind of fundamentally shaken the industry to its roots. You actually said something the other day that really kind of piqued my interest and got us to get on the phone. How do you maintain that creative edge when you're in the midst of a crisis, a lot of organizations, they tend to shift dramatically, if not just stop all their creativity and get back to the fundamentals of just crisis communication. Share a little bit about your perspective on that. I think it's a really insightful time for brand strategists to study brand behavior. As a creative and as a strategist, I hope uh, to always make our brands authentic in uh, not only what they say, but how they act. And I feel like that's been the major shift as we look at the kind of creativity in crisis uh, as well. It's a shift from brand messaging and talking about what you do or communicating uh, what you do to actually doing or your, your brand behavior. And it's been really inspiring to see. It's almost like the entire world of brands, regardless of category, regardless of region, have come together in this giant PSA campaign. And it's all about helping people relate to this crisis and we're all in this together and we've as a natural outcome of this retreat to our our families or our home or our our places of comfort and we look to the brands that we love and trust for more of that for more trust for comfort for inspiration creativity during this crisis has moved from just simply communicating to doing and 
perhaps showing or communicating what you're doing. So that's why I think some of those brands that seem to do really well, um, or at least score pretty highly in uh, some of the studies that I've read recently, are those that are doing things that are truly uniquely helpful um, to people, regardless of their target audience, um, just being helpful to humanity. Let's kind of walk through that kind of that shift that happens because many brand uh, strategists or, or and brand experts in health systems right now are probably trying to evaluate how they could start to shift their messaging and and, and start to, to focus in on that. You have a framework. Walk me through it a little bit here. Sure. So I look at it in, in basically three simple steps. And the first one's really around the onset of the crisis. Uh, it's like, oh, no, it's happening to the crisis itself when you're in the middle of it um, to that the bridging of the recovery of the transition coming out of it. When we're in the crisis or at the onset of the crisis, rather, brands tend to uh, want to be, especially today, if you've ever wanted to be an agile marketer, now is the time to do that. It's about relating and converting your messaging from brand features and benefits to more of those brand values uh, associations of relatability, we're understanding, we're a community, we're, I'm, we as a brand are empathetic uh, and supportive. Sometimes that means uh, stopping some of the things you're active in during this onset of a crisis. Like Android had a campaign that was all about being out and about. And obviously during this social distancing and stay at home kind of environment, it's not a great message to communicate. Brands during the onset need to find ways to become genuine and relatable. Uh, so it doesn't feel like one of those emails you're, you're getting. Um, it feels a little bit more supportive or empathetic. Yeah, and I'm starting to see examples of those happen throughout many different brands. I think of like grocery workers or people that are in the supply chain that we never before considered to be frontline workers. And now there are advertisements that say, you know, we're in it together and, and they, they show a commitment to not only keeping the environment safe for people shopping, but that there, there's a commitment, a higher calling for people to be a grocery store workers. Two months ago, I wouldn't think about grocery store workers in that way, but now I do because of the shift. Is that kind of what you're what you're relating to? Yeah, I think the ability for a brand to recognize and relate to uh, those really emotive touch points within the experience, uh, I think that's really important. And that's an opportunity. If your brand isn't directly shifting its operations to make more ventilators in this instance, or to make more hand gel, then you, you find other ways to be supportive. And you know sometimes being serious and silent is just fine. Uh, you don't need to say something just to say it, but if there's an opportunity for you to demonstrate your understanding, your relatable qualities of your brand values, then that's a, this is a, as good a time as any to underscore that. And you know we're in a really finicky world too. I mean, if you look at what McDonald's tried to do with the onset of of social distancing and by pulling their golden arches away in their identity, nice creative design idea, but the backlash to that, you know, makers got to make and haters got to hate. <laughs> so the backlash of the community to use that as an opportunity to slam the brand for their paid time off policies or employment uh, practices, it can be a very finicky uh, industry for sure. Absolutely. I think that that was one campaign expression that 
just it felt tone deaf to me. Now I'm not the one to go on to social media and complain about it, but it, it because of all those other things. So yeah, you're right. There was that kind of that backlash and that and that response to that because it wasn't really authentic. It wasn't authentic about their brand. Yeah, I, I don't think it was very strategic either. It felt like a cool tactical design idea, but nobody necessarily thought through the strategic implication of it. Yeah, I think back a couple of years ago when Oreo had the you could still dunk cookies in the dark oh, yeah. when the Super Bowl lights went out. That was a creative way to to address that, but now you don't want to you don't want to say that, right? It's just yeah. it's just not good. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so that's the first part, right? The uh, when you're when you're when it's starting to happen, I think that we're in the midst of the crisis. What happens now to brands? How how do they respond to that? Yeah, so I think the, the shift is all about behavior. So going from uh, talking and, sh- and communicating messages or values, now it's time to put the proof uh, into your behavior, activating on ways to help. And again, this isn't necessarily just about your target audience. It's about uh, being responsive and agile to pivot the business for humanity in general. I think the best brands, at least some of the examples I've seen today, start by listening. You know, it's, it's about understanding what's important to our employees, which are key brand stakeholders, what's impl- important to our customers, as well as the market at large. Coors did a really interesting thing where they had heard from a neighbor of a 93-year-old woman in Pennsylvania that this 93-year-old woman posted a sign in her window that she was out of beer, and out of Coors Light. And... So Coors activated to go actually deliver Coors Light to this woman. You could say that those kinds of tactics may be uh, less meaningless, but the point is listening and responding uh, to a a customer request. Um, I think on a more serious, higher level engagement is somebody like Ford and 3M and GE and what they're doing to really uh, begin to, to pivot their business around the new needs of the market. So going from the auto business to the ventilator production business and never having partnered with GE or 3M before to forming partnerships. And remember, these are happening at breakneck speeds. So that agility and responsiveness has been super impressive. And even I think you had mentioned the other day about Uber offering their their free rides to healthcare workers, even while they cannot operate as a business for consumers under the stay at home, right? And I see that happen with big and little brands. I mean, even here in the Twin Cities, I, I see distilleries that have stopped creating, you know, gin and, and vodka, and now they're making hand sanitizers. Yeah. And they're offering those free to healthcare workers. I mean, the way we 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 shifted so quickly, that really is a behavioral response in and of itself. How do you communicate those behavioral changes? I see, I see a lot of that coming through, like through news feeds and news stories and things like that. How would you recommend to communicate those messages when you're in that mode of the crisis? The consumption of news channels during times like this, they're off the chart, right? So um, that's a natural place to go and as well as trusted social channels and, and looking to find ways that you can be uh, certainly not uh, opportunistic or ambulance chasing, but just authentic in how you're placing those messages in those channels. One of the, the examples I really liked was how uh, Walgreens actually took some of their existing uh, creative assets. I think they were an email form initially that were sent out to email customers uh, or a list of email um, addresses. And it was all about their online robot chat functionality. 
and they converted those assets into a video that then played in social channels from YouTube to uh, Instagram and Twitter. And it's a really good example of being super agile and uh, leveraging your existing assets if you don't have time or uh, resources currently to make new ones. Um, there's a couple of other really good examples too where uh, somebody like, uh, to use another category, Carter's Baby Products and Pebbles Cereal both um, reached out to their employees and their customers and said, can you create content for us? Tell us what you're doing to stay at home or what you're doing to stay safe. Uh, and that's naturally uh, generating that consumer-generated content in their social channels that's been really, um, you know, really authentic and relatable. You know, I sell that in hospitals too. In fact, a lot of hospital Instagram photos are now sharing like what the community has done and like if, if from the chalk drawings on the sidewalks in front of the hospitals that the community has done to, you know, how they're celebrating in, in New York at seven o'clock, they're banging on pots and pans to make noise at the, sh at the shift changes. Those are really great ways of taking user generated content and their alignment to your brand and, and bringing that back to reinforce what you do. Yeah, I think that's, that's fantastic. And the other piece I like about that is how that affects our expectations for production quality of communications. It's okay to see something shot on an iPhone and be brought to you by a brand or um, an organization. Uh, because it's super genuine and relatable, right? I, mean, I think uh, Kraft Heinz asked some of their uh, plant workers who are still working um, to create a video or they asked them about capturing assets during this time. And they ended up creating a, a pretty compelling and emotively charged TV commercial based on the point of view from the plant workers. You know, it wasn't shot with a high-end TV production crew. Uh, it was done really genuinely. There is a time though, when you, when you get past the crisis and you start to bridge to what, you know, what, what a lot of people are calling the new normal, what, 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 what it looks like after crisis, post-crisis. And I know that, you know, we're a little bit away from that right now. Uh, this crisis currently that we're under is, it may seem like it might go on for years, but talk a little bit about how brands can pivot to that, to bridge to that next stage. The ultimate opportunity here is to kind of reset based on your learnings. And to build that bridge, you have to apply all the knowledge you've gained up to that point of the bridge, right? How has the market changed? How, what are the new dynamics in your customer segments and industry? What types of relationships have you built and or shifted throughout this time? Um, and what's because of all this, how has the business shifted? If you've created and pivoted during the crisis to help the production of X, Y, or Z products, what do you do with that now? I mean, you've, you've made some significant investments. Uh, is that an opportunity to continue to support in those areas while some of your other business starts to uh, gain more traction and reconnect? And then that kind of rolls up to a new vision opportunity. If you are a brand in a category and you've pivoted to serve another category, traditionally, those are really difficult brand strategy um, assignments to take a brand that may be smart for healthcare and suddenly make that smart in the office supply industry. That may not, that equity may not transfer very effectively. So there may be an opportunity now because of your success in this new industry to either stretch that brand where you wouldn't be able to earlier, if that instance makes sense, or to create a sub brand to support some new industries. So there's new models and new 
opportunities that certainly present themselves, as well as it's important to, to address the ability to resist temptation. Um, just because you can doesn't mean you should. They were able to help in some of these other um, pandemic times, but it may not make sense to continue that going forward. That's part of defining that new normal. I'm kind of wondering how that would play out. Like when we talked about earlier about 3M and Ford retooling to do ventilators, that doesn't necessarily mean that after the post-pandemic that they're going to continue to do that. However, you know, in past crises that we've been through as a country, we have seen some of those things lift out. In terms of World War II, there have been some industries that were retooled to help with the military uh, support. And then post-war, they retained a division of their business to continue to do that. And, and you can do that through that existing brand or look at that as an opportunity to launch another brand or another business entirely. If anything, this whole crisis has made me more of a discriminating viewer of brands and the way brand messages are. I've become very judgy about some brands, I have to tell you, yeah. um, you know, how they're presenting themselves. But in other cases, it's also made, it's made me feel stronger aligned to those brands I believe in. Yeah. This is the whole point, right, of good brand work. I think it was last week, Harvard Business Review uh, did an article about brands in crisis and their roles and what consumers look to them for and basically found that consumers want to hear from experts, not actors, as they say, um, during this time. You may tend to resonate more strongly with the brand because their understanding or communication or activity around helping and becoming an expert as opposed to just entertainment or uh, some kind of uh, disingenuous activity. Uh, but there's all sorts of interesting connection between how brands uh, begin to, to reshape themselves through something like this. And uh, a lot of it has to do with understanding what your current consumer relationship is like uh, versus what it can be now uh, post-pandemic. And as we see the consumer mindsets shifting, perhaps, and, you know, again, we're, we're in we're in this for a little bit longer time, I know. But, you know, uh, as we come out of this and we try to transition back to whatever that new normal is, it, it really becomes important for a brand specialist or brand expert that you're that either you have internally or you're working with a partner to do that, that they continue to stay aware of how your brand is playing out in the industry itself, in the marketplace itself. If I'm a marketer at one of those organizations, one of the things I would take advantage of is if things are slowing down a little bit in our regular lines of business, um, I can shift into planning mode and start to thoughtfully think about how I can um, consider these opportunities coming out of this and continue to support, et cetera. Well, Mark, this has been a really interesting conversation. I really appreciate it. And, and I liked all the examples that we shared today. I think that's that's really good. It helps us to understand because often, you know, we in healthcare marketing, we don't have really good peer brands that we can look at. We have to kind of look at other others for examples. Although that's not to say that I have, I have seen a lot of healthcare hospital systems really rise up to the occasion and, and, and ingrain that into their brand messaging. I'm inspired by this. And I think that this is, this is a really timely topic. And I, I appreciate your time today. You know, people listening in may want to know more about you and your company. What are some ways they can find you uh, online? Sure. You can, uh, I think the best way would be to go to our website, morsecode.com, which is M-O-R-S-E-K-O-D-E.com. And then certainly uh, follow us on uh, Twitter and Instagram for ongoing uh, updates, etc.
Well, we're going to link to all that in the show notes. So if you're listening in, click over to the show notes and click through and learn a little bit more about Mark and Morse Code, a really great company. I really appreciate your time today. Yeah, well, likewise. I enjoyed it as well. So thank you, Chris. Special thanks to Mark Morris for coming on the show and uh, chatting a little bit. Certainly appreciate his time. Oddly, in a time where we're not getting together in person, we actually have a couple of conferences to talk about. We do. (laughs) Uh, The the first one I'll mention, uh, great partners uh, of ours, but the American Telemedicine Association, fittingly enough, has their annual conference and expo coming up. ATA 2020 certainly was meant to be in person, ironically, not ironically. I don't know. Anyway, it's virtual now and is June 22nd through the 26th. So you can uh, you can go to gotelehealth.org. Gotelehealth.org is the website where you could find out more about that conference, sign up, and uh, check it out. So we appreciate them and their support of uh, Touchpoint. And I uh, would encourage you to go check that out, especially with everything that's been going on. There'll be some uh, really great programming there that you can check out at that site. The other conference I want to talk about, Reed, is on the 17th of June. So coming out pretty quickly when you hear this podcast, I'm going to be part of the Minnesota Health Strategy and Communications Network Conference, virtual conference, also colloquially known as MISHAM. We're going to be uh, getting together and there's going to be an update for members of Minnesota hospitals. And I'm going to be talking a little bit about some of the changes that we're seeing. Some of the things, the very things that we talk about here on the podcast. For those of you who are in Minnesota and are part of Misham, or if you're even not part of Misham, you can participate. We'll put a link in the show notes to that conference as well. Very cool. Well, let's uh, let's do a couple of recommendations before we uh, before we end the show. What uh, What do you have today? So we are in the day where we're still dealing with the coronavirus and it is getting hotter and hotter outside. So we do know that when you're out in public and interacting with people, you do need to wear some kind of facial covering or some kind of mask of some sort. There are a number of masks that are out there, but one of the ones that my wife and I just recently found is from a company called Figs. Have you ever heard about the company Figs? I don't think so. They actually do scrubs for nurses and doctors. So okay. That's what they do professionally. So they have a number of uh, masks that they've been creating, clearly for the healthcare professionals, but these aren't like the N95 masks, right? These are more of the facial coverings. They even propose that you could wear these over your N95 masks if you want to. But these are just cloth coverings. The ones that um, my wife and I just recently got, which we found works out really great because they're lightweight, breathable. You can wear them out when it's very hot out. We even wore them when we were riding our bikes. So that's a good sign. It's over the, over the ear strap. It's called the Fionx Protective Face Mask. And get this, it's soft, washable, so you can throw it in the washing machine, clean it off. It's a super soft cotton blend liner inside of it. And then there's a third liner where you can actually slip in a BFE activated filter. So it has room to add in another wow. filter just in case. And they send you a, a series of three filters that you can take. So if you get to a place where you know there could be higher risk, higher elevated risks of uh, transferring of the coronavirus, you can slip in this activated filter all in this little handy uh, facial covering mask. It's very affordable. We ordered it uh, last week and it came within three days. And there are different sizes too for people. There's small, medium, and larges. So that's going to be my recommendation. Um, mask. Well, there you go. Very nice. I am actually going to recommend an app 
It is called Robin Hood. You heard of Robin Hood? I think I have, but go on. <clears throat> it's an investing app. You know, and there's tons of them out there, certainly, where you could trade stocks and buy stocks and all that kind of good stuff. But anyway, it's pretty cool. And um, it's a it's a stock investing app. Uh, a buddy of mine had it. Uh, he recommended it. So he sent me the little code. So we each got a free stock. Uh, it's kind of an interesting way. If you're interested in it, get somebody. I'm happy to send you one. But get somebody that, that has it. They can send you a link and you each get a free stock. So... Uh, it's kind of addictive. It's pretty fun. It's got some neat research and stuff like that. I'm up 76 cents today, so I'm pretty excited about that. Um, but yeah, Robin Hood. Well, there you go. We'll have to check it out. I've heard of. I think I, that's what I heard about, but I haven't downloaded it. So they've got other components to it. You know, it's got like a debit card that you get some some money back on, and you know things like that. So it's uh, it's pretty cool though. There you go. Always good to save your money. Oh, I think I actually bought a bought a share of Ford. Out there working in healthcare. <laughs> uh, another great episode. Thanks for joining in. Thanks for uh, participating. Certainly appreciate all the support. Go out, rate, review, subscribe wherever you happen to listen. Touchpoint.health is the website. The TPS report, everything else that you'd like to sign up for and know about is also there. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.